Welcome to Present Company, the Netflix podcast that brings you dynamic conversations with exceptional people behind your favorite series, films, documentaries, and specials. I'm your host, Krista Smith. For years, I was Vanity Fair's ambassador to Hollywood, interviewing countless actors as well as creatives and authorities across the spectrum. My passion is talent, any form of it. How do you know you have it? How do you cultivate it? How do you protect it? And also, I want to get to the heart of what drives it. On this podcast, I'll be talking to people in Hollywood and far beyond. Thank you for joining me. Tolerance. Open up. Be flexible. Everyone has a point of view, even if they have terrible points of view. Have a point of view. Negotiate. Talk about it. Open up. Be JFK. Stop bickering on and on and on. That's Sir Anthony Hopkins describing his new film, The Two Popes, in which Hopkins delivers an extraordinary performance as Pope Benedict, opposite an equally superb Jonathan Price playing Pope Francis. It's a film that audiences and critics have fallen in love with. Hopkins, of course, is a legend, but at 81 years old, the Oscar winner wears the mantle of fame and success lightly, waving away the pretensions of Hollywood and declining to hobnob. We talk about all that, but we also go way back to the beginning of the story, from his life as a young man in Wales, to his work on the stage, to the Silence of the Lambs phenomenon, and we talk about his Instagram game, which is very strong, his art, his music, and his joie de vie. This is one of the most fun and illuminating interviews I've done, so please enjoy. Anthony Hopkins, it's great to see you. I'm so happy to be here in Santa Monica. I feel like you're in your natural habitat. Good to be here. Uh, How long ago did you move to California? Hundreds of years ago. I've been here, my God, 45 years. Well, I did go back to England for a few years, but I came out here in 1975, now, most people, especially East Coast and Europeans, are rather snotty about Los Angeles. What, why me. did it speak to you? I love the weather. I love the beaches. I came out in 73 to do a film with Goldie Horn. And I remember it was raining. But uh, I was staying up at the Sunset Marquee Hotel. And I went out next morning and everything is, you know, the ground was wet. The sun was out. And the colors. And I thought, my God, I love this place. I went down to Grauman's Chinese that first Sunday. Walked all the way down there. Now this film is going to be released there. Oh, it's great. Grandma Chinese. And, um, you know, looked at the footsteps of Humphrey Bogart and all these people. I thought, this is the place I want to be. And uh, years later, and, and, and then it worked out. And uh, I, I wished it. I had a dream that I'd come out here. And it wasn't just so much for work. It was just the whole lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Because work is secondary to me. It's, uh, it doesn't consume my life, you know. Mm-hmm. So I just love the lifestyle here but I go back to England and and do and you don't have quite the Cali accent. You still have a bit of your Welsh accent. Oh yes, I am Welsh. I've just been back to Wales. I was doing a film, making from there in London, um, called The Father. It's a wonderful film, great script. Anyway, I don't know what, but I've done that. And um, so my wife and I went down to Wales. She's doing a documentary film on me, and she interviewed people who my cousins and a teacher who knew me. Wow, and, you're pretty uh, awful as a kid, though, right? I was, yeah, I wasn't very <laughs> bright. And uh, no, I wasn't awful. I was just not very smart. And the teacher said to my wife, he said, 
well, he, you know, he he didn't join in anyone, didn't take part in the school plays, he didn't speak to anyone, he was very quiet, not a very bright student. And suddenly within 10 years he'd gone boom. And he said, uh, so, so when I look back at my life and it's like, it's as if Schopenhauer said, well, as we get older, we can look back on our lives and realise that it's a novel written by someone else. Mm-hmm. And that's such a freeing statement. It woke me up, I thought, because we can't really take credit or blame for any of it. It's all a mystery to me. I'm here. 60 years ago, I could barely function, you know. Mm-hmm. And here I am. So it doesn't make any sense. I can't take credit for anything. It's interesting that you say you were, were, weren't very smart because you're you're so intelligent when it comes to acting and... Um, perspective and truth and you're so curious yeah. that it's so interesting. You just you just weren't fit for school smarts. I guess no. you weren't school smart. That's what it is. And I, I, and I think uh, so many people who later become successful in life suffered some sort of disconnection when they were in school because their brains were somewhere else. You know, they're, mm-hmm. maybe it's, I don't know, they've got all fancy names for it, ADD or something. I don't know what it was. But I was good at drawing and playing piano and music. So I was a bit of a dreamer. I remember saying to my mother and father, my father's always worried about me. I don't know what's going to happen to you, would say. This Welsh accent. Oh, I don't know what's going to happen to you. Hopeless. And I remember saying to him, I said, I'll show you one day. And I didn't say it aggressively. I said, I'll show you both of you one day. I didn't know what I meant by that. And suddenly, within a few months, I'd joined an acting group because I was so shy. And then it all blossomed. My parents lived long enough to see me mm-hmm. become very successful. Oh, I, your Academy Award speech is so moving. <laughs> I just watched that. Oh, I knew did? I was going to see you. And I yeah. thought, oh, I remember it yeah. in that moment because Silence of the Lambs, I had just gotten a job at, at um, Vanity Fair working for the features editor, which had, which was covered you know, arts and entertainment. And the first movie I saw as a grown-up, I put that in parentheses, was Silence of the Lambs at 10 in the morning, (laughs) alone in a screening room. In New York? In New York, being terrified and coming back and being like, you know, you won't believe what I saw. And I felt (laughs) so vindicated in my enthusiasm for the film because I was very, very junior. And I was like, no, it's incredible. And this actor, Anthony Hopkins and, and whatnot. I think in the end, you ended up we ended up putting you in the magazine for that at that time, but it was fantasy fair, yes, yes, yeah. But it was so gratifying, and and I do remember that when you won, and I went back and I listened to your speech, and it was very yes. moving because you you first spoke to your family and and your mother, and yeah. you could tell that you were moved that you won. Well, it was a friend of mine in in Wales, um, Eve Williams, and uh, uh, she looked after my mother. She was she's younger than me, but she was a very close friend of my mother after my father died, and and. Uh, my mother was in their home watching the mm. television that night. And uh, then the Western Mail, the newspaper, came round to see Eve because I thanked Eve and Jean and my mother and they had some friends there. And I was uh, talking to Eve uh, just a few days ago and uh, we see her when I get back. She's been out here with her husband. And, and those connections you never lose. Mm-hmm. Now I feel more Welsh than I've ever been. Mm. And I love to go back there. That's great. What do you remember about that night? Did, did, did it feel like you had shown everybody? Yeah, I suppose. A little bit. Actually, the night I got it was my father. It was the anniversary of my father's death. 
And um, yes, I, I didn't feel any kind of triumphalism. So I've never felt that. I think once you begin to feel triumphed, I think you're in big trouble, you know. Mm-hmm. Power or stardom, whatever you want to call it, it's fun. But finally, it doesn't mean that much because what are we? And I say to young actors today, I said, stop being so cool. You're trying to look like you know it all. You don't. We don't know much. You're just a human being. And somebody asked me once, years ago, and I was in bad trouble, and they said, how do you feel? I said, inadequate. They said, that's exactly what you are, inadequate. Join the human race. <laughs> the best advice I ever had, and I remember the weight lifting off my shoulders, because I thought I was so important. Somebody said, you are inadequate. Absolutely, totally inadequate. Join the human race and breathe. And I thought, oh, thank God for that. Mm. Didn't have to prove how clever I was. Nobody cared. Mm. And two billion Chinese don't even know who I am. And um, that's my life. But yeah, that night I, I didn't expect to get it. I thought Nick Nolte would get it. And then I saw Kathy Bates coming down stage to present the award. And for some reason, I think a little voice in my head said, "You got it." And then when she called my name, I thought, well, "I don't know what I'm going to say." <laughs> and I got up then and I thought, "How extraordinary!" It was that night my father died a few years before, ten years before. That is extraordinary. The the. The, what do they say? There are no uh, coincidences, like the timing oh. of that. And then it's interesting because the Oscars, because of the calendars, different every year. You know, what day that Sunday is on and, and whatnot. Yeah. Um, it's all a dream. I, I I can't account for any of it. It's a mystery to me. And as I'm getting older, I'm going to be 82 in December. And I think, what is this all about? I mean, what, what are we doing here? I, and I do believe that there's some subterranean thing within all our lives that – moves us forward because I look at my own life, especially my, the revelation in Wales when um, meeting my cousins and my wife still in, interviewing a school teacher and I thought, well, that's incredible. I, it happened so fast. Mm. And I'm, you know, I'm an old sinner like everyone else. I think, well, maybe there's no judgment. You know, there's a, I don't know what it's about. Mm. Maybe it's all a, I believe it's all a dream. All a dream. Well, speaking of a dream, The Two Popes is a dream of a movie. I love this film. And speaking of Welsh, you are paired with another Welsh actor, Jonathan right. Price. Jonathan Price. <laughs> and I'd never, I didn't know Jonathan, except we'd met, you know, say hi. And I did direct, I was asked by George Martin, the Beatles guy, mm-hmm. if I would direct Under Milkwood, Dun & Thomas. And I said, when? He said, at the, it was for the Prince of Wales Trust. I was in Wembley. It was in this big studio, at his studio, which is now a big sound studio. And I directed it on stage. And John, we had all the Welsh actors there. Tom Jones sang in it for me. And Jonathan played second voice. I played first voice in Ireland. And uh, then we met briefly in uh, London when I was doing King Lear. Uh, God, that was almost two years ago. Time has gone by so fast. And uh, Fernando Mares was there. He said, could we meet and have a reading of the script of the Pope, two popes? And that's how I met Jonathan again. And uh, uh, then went off to Rome, and um, he'd been in Argentina. and So I joined him in Rome, and we had a laugh. We had a lot of fun. <laughs> I can only imagine. I wish oh. our listeners could see the expression on your face. But, but Jonathan's the loveliest yeah. man. He's so unobtrusive, unpretentious gets on with it. He's not comfortable with fame and all that. I think he just enjoys his life. Is um, that a traditionally Welsh characteristic? Well, we're very puritanical, I think. Mm. I suppose it is. It's um, 
Don't like too much fuss. We're an insular people. I love Wales. I love visiting and going back. And I'm thinking maybe I'll go back there eventually. And mm. but um, yes, I have. I'm not one of those people who's just Welsh, you know, mm -hmm. being wherever I am. But uh, it's a nice feeling to go back. Mm -hmm. I feel the roots. My accent, even talking about it, mm -hmm. become more Welsh. Mm -hmm. I was born in the same town as Richard Burton. Mm. Burton was born 12 years before me. Mm -hmm. The funny thing is that uh, my father had a bakery business, a bakehouse, tiny groceries. This is post-war years. He'd taken it over from his father, who was a baker. And these are the depressing years of the post-war, rationing and grey days and me in school not very bright. <laughs> and living down the street just literally around the corner was this young kid and he's being trained by a man called Philip Burton and Richard was Richard Jenkins we came from the valleys of Pont of the Venn and Port Talbot and uh, by 1948 49 he suddenly hit it big and um, then he became a big star in Hollywood and uh, Huge. and I, I, I still think wow it's extraordinary and the oddest thing was that it was Easter, 1955, I always remember. And then my father asked me to take a basket of bread around to Thomas Cobain, the grocery. My father said, get your hands out of your pockets, do something. <laughs> I was so lazy. I used to play the piano all day. Mm -hmm. He said, stop playing the piano, do something. And I remember taking the bread over to, it was a beautiful Easter morning, 1955, and uh, I was just coming out through a side gate. This grey jag pulled up to get into Commercial Road on the incline, it was called. It's Richard Burton. And I'd been to ask him for his autograph. And uh, he looked at me. He didn't, you know. He had a cigarette in his mouth. Mm -hmm. I thought, God, that's what I want to be. And years later, years later, 1976, he was standing in the same dressing room I was in, in Equus in New York. I'd been there. Then Tony Perkins took over for me. And then Burton took over for me. So I went to see him. And we... He said, good God, he said, uh, why haven't we worked together? He said, you were t from Thai Park, Port Trouble, I said, yes. Your father had a baker shop, I said, that's right. Wow. He said, good God, he said, why, oh, isn't this strange? I said, yes, it is. Why haven't we worked together? I said, I don't know. And he said, how do you remember all the lines in this play? Because he was going on that line. And his um, wife, by the second marriage around, was Elizabeth Taylor. Mm -hmm. She came into the stage door because of the crowds in the street. Yeah. And she'd had a couple of drink. <laughs> but he was already had his girlfriend, Susan Hunt. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's all held to play that night over in Sardis, apparently. And, um, but Burton, he was a great actor. Um, bit of a self-destruct merchant. But he had a big influence on me, I think, because I thought, well, I, because I know that area so well. And I can understand that darkness or anger, whatever it was that motivated us all at some point in our lives to mm -hmm. make the break to get out. I think it takes that initial spark of rage or anger or rebellion says, move, and something moves in behind and says, good, off we go, and you move, and you mustn't look back. Mm -hmm. takes the stamina too, the, the, yeah. the rage and stamina. But yeah, you have to have a lot of humor with it as well. <laughs> you have to you never lose the sense of humor. Mm -hmm. Well, that's one of the things that I loved about your film, Two Popes. It has so much humor in it. Yes. You know, it 
these two men, obviously you play Pope Benedict and and uh, Jonathan is Pope Francis. That's right. And what I loved about it is it dealt as much with the human story as the institution. And yeah. it was so revealing in such a fresh way. And why, as I was raised eight day week Catholic, right? So I, of course, oh, oh, blah, blah, blah. so it's so interesting to go inside the Vatican and the details and the way it was shot and the and all the rituals. I was obsessed with the rituals. Yeah. Uh, of seeing how they choose the pope and just the wardrobe and the dressing, he did the director did such a great job yes. in in painting that picture and really letting you in there. But it was the movie at the at its core is about these two men figuring out a way to relate to each other and solve problems, even though they come at it from completely different perspectives. Yes. Well, I think the success of the film so far is due to Anthony McCartney, who wrote such a, what's the word, a fluid script. And, uh, of course, uh, Fernando Mores, because, it, you know, you think, well, are we going to watch a, a heavy religious tract of philosophy? But I think what he did, McCartney, Anthony McCartney, was create this very, this fluid human situation where two men are in the opposition. I love the world today. I mean, everyone's so full of hatred and bitterness. But you have two men who are opposites. One conservative German, conservative pope, a priest, a pope rather, who is a theological scholar, a brilliant philosopher and brilliant mind. But he's a conservative. Nothing wrong with that. He wants to protect mm-hmm. the church. And suddenly along comes this madcap guy who's a Marxist, a man in the streets, a revolutionary probably. South America, Argentina, teeming with revolution. And I think, I don't want to meet this guy. He's uh, going to obviously upset everything. But what I think is great about the script, and, you know, it doesn't take a genius to figure this out, that so you were opposed to somebody politically or religiously. But it comes to a point where you think, well, I have a right to there beliefs as I have a right to mine. And let's see if we can make a mix of it. It's like John F. Kennedy. When, during the uh, Cuba crisis, for example, mm-hmm. Kennedy knew that Khrushchev and the Russians must have had a big problem with America. What was making them nervous? Well, we had rockets all around Turkey. So he said, OK, but let's sort this out. Now he's going to put rockets in Cuba. We're not going to destroy everything just for this. Let's see if we can talk it out. So he warned him, threatened him, and I think a great political move allowed Nikita Khrushchev to save face. Now that's diplomacy, and with Ratzinger, he sees this passionate young, well, younger man who's got some pretty strange ideas for me, but he begins to think, and I think the way it was written, and the clue I took from it was when we were in the Sistine Chapel, and... Uh, um, we were sitting down, I think, and there's a, a scene, I can't remember the actual dialogue, when I said, I'm going to resign. Which means you're going to resign. You can't do that. Why not? I'm going to resign. Because obviously he has better ideas. My revelation for writing for myself is maybe I'm old. I'm ill. I'm not very, I'm frail. And maybe I'm stuck. I'm a stick in the mud. And uh, God 
and faith can be fluid and why shouldn't it be fluid? Why can't we all get together? And he said, I think you're the man to do it, which is a great victory for everyone. You're the man. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, Jonathan, you know, uh, Bergoglio doesn't want it. Mr. Well, I think you're the one to take it over. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that. Mm-hmm. That's the magic of human, you know, human give and take. Well, there's that great line at one point. I think Jonathan says, you know, I completely disagree with you, but I think you might be right. You And I just love that yes. idea of this dialogue of it. And it is. It's so – because hope connects us and that that optimism connects us, I think, as, as human beings. And it's optimism. And he really – I think Fernando and and uh, Anthony, obviously the writer, the director, they really captured that. And your yeah. performances just made it so human. I mean, there's so many scenes. The pizza scene with the Fanta. You, when as the Pope walking through the Sistine Chapel, as the tourists are there, yeah. like all these elements of it, and playing the piano, and, and the playing the piano, and obviously uh, from your Instagram. <laughs> Which you delight your million plus followers with your piano at, at at random times. I was like, oh wait, that's actually you, obviously playing the piano. Well, see that that was an, an opportunity to improvise. And I yeah. always checked with Fernando. Uh, I I mean, I I never dream of rewriting anything, but I did put a suggestion. He said, "What would you like to play?" I said, well, "He said he suggested Tramarai by Schumann." I said, well, "I can play that," but so I said, "Um." I make something up, a bit of classical sound. And he said, can you play jazz as well? I said, well, I'll have a go. And I played, I don't think I sent a recording, but I played it on the piano. I called it Sweet Alvidesein. And I put in a little bit, I said, Zarid Leander used to sing in the cabaret, the cabaret days in the 1930s in Berlin. She had a big, a great voice, almost like a baritone, but beautiful sound, like Malene Dietrich. So I made that up. And I think what I wanted to convey in that, that... Ratzinger had no problem with the German corrupt cabaret of sex and all that stuff yeah. that went on. He didn't care. This is human life. And uh, he said, yes, the cabaret. She used to sing. It's a great voice. And then, I met, of course, I don't know who the Beatles are. And he said, but Eleanor Rubia said, I don't, I don't know who, who she. And all <laughs> that was improvised. Yeah. That's and it, it gives a kind of softness mm-hmm. that no, no one's perfect. Mm-hmm. We're all sinners. We're all sinners. Well, I love certainly. that. Fernando said that you were the most prepared, focused actor he has ever worked with. <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh, that's great. Which I thought is a great compliment. In Focus that, implies intensity, but it's not intense. No, but, but you I, knew the script. Like you yeah. knew the words inside and out and the scripts and you would you would communicate with him and have thoughts. And like I, like I had said earlier, so – intelligent about just right what you told me about cabaret like the layers and the research yeah. into what's happening in the moment that by the time you're actually shooting it's as if there's no acting at all you you're uh, just watching you have to prepare yeah. and you have to, it's like driving a car you get into a new car for example and you know what the gears are but it takes you a few minutes maybe an hour to get used to it because the muscular memory and it's the same you know you have to readjust very quickly. But it's, it's with acting the same. Once you know the levels of the script and what you want to do with it and dig down under the 
cobble streets of the dialogue thing. What? The, how can I rephrase this without changing words? And uh, what are the? And then you can find meaning within meaning within meaning. Once you can do that, and you've say learned it, and it's in part of your nervous system, part of the fabric of your own being, let's put it. Um, then you can improvise within it, and uh, it may, may lighten it up or kick it around a bit. Um, but you have to know it. But that's me. I'm probably compulsive, neurotic. I have to know it. Um, and I dread uh, being on stage and drying up, you know. So I was always meticulous because I'm um, to go on stage and you don't know your lines is mm-hmm. deadly. And um, people have, you know, I mean, with all, with all due respect, I know actors have to like to hear their lines fed through an earphone. It drive me insane. I couldn't yeah. do that. I can't even do that on ah. if I'm on live television. It drives me crazy. And well, Brando used to do it, and I think a lot of actors do. And you think, what the? I mean, they're fine if it works for them, but I, I can't do it. Mm-hmm. Did you feel a sense, a grander sense of responsibility because you were playing a pope, or was it any no different than any other character you've done? Ah, uh, not a responsibility. I mean, I made sure that. You know, I looking looking at the script. Is this offensive to Catholic Roman Catholics, or would it be offensive to the Vatican? And I thought, no, I don't think so. I don't know. I I leave with, with the production and the know-alls. You know, the director and the producers—they've got to contend with those problems or the studio. But um, no, I had a sense of uh, I had a sense of quiet through it when I was putting the the tailor. Did all the costumes? He does all the Pope's robes. We flew in the Pope's helicopter. Mm-hmm. So you get a sense of, shall I say, reverence. You get a sense of respect, of powerful respect. Never mind what your beliefs are. And when they were in the Sistine Chapel doing all, that, I was looking at those extraordinary paintings of Michelangelo. It's quite extraordinary. How? I mean, there's a moment in um, in the Sistine Chapel, the painting of God touching Adam. And the, an English neurosurgeon happened to be in the Sistine Chapel with his wife. He said, look, and in the cloak of God, there's the brain and the brain stem. That, and he, what he implied was that God is hidden in us. Mm-hmm. And he'd painted that because, I mean, I had he, you know, he, in plain sight, because he could have been burnt at the stake for implying uh, such arrogance. But it's there, and you see it in the cloak, the brain stem. Mm-hmm. Now, Michelangelo used to go to the morgues and dissect bodies, so he knew so much about the human anatomy. And he put that in there as an example of that. Maybe it's all housed in here. 300,000 years ago, we started worshipping, maybe longer. Mm-hmm. We started burying the dead mm-hmm. and ceremonies. So something in our consciousness, over, over, almost half a million years ago, start, well, the Neanderthals, start, I'm fascinated by all that. How did religious thought start? Where did it come from? Mm-hmm. And Kubrick tries to answer it in uh, 2001. The apes looking mm-hmm. up at the moon and then discovering the bone. And, right. But it is fascinating. And I find that terribly moving that we have come this far for all our grave faults that we've evolved so ra- rapidly. And that's the problem because we still have that reptilic brain that is aggressive and violent. Um, so I love to watch animals. I love to watch the way they interact with each other. 
And uh, I, I think we've got it wrong, the human <laughs> animal. I don't, I don't think we're that bright. We think we are, but I don't think we're that bright. And I think that's why every so often some guy comes along like the carpenter in the Middle East and says, cast the first stone who has not sinned and understands human nature. And people come along once in a while, you know, whether it's Einstein or uh, whoever they are, Jesus or Muhammad, and they see the frailty of the human condition. What What are your views on faith at, at 80 years old, having... Well, it's a very mysterious thing for me because, you know, I sometimes join the debating society in my own brain. Is there a guy? Is there anything? And I don't know. But now I'm more convinced than ever that there is... Well, I know that there's something much bigger than me and that I am nothing. And I'm amazed and enjoy That's why I do these Instagram things with full of fun. They're saying, come on, we're all going to be dead one day. Have some fun. Stop being so grim. <laughs> and that's what that guy did 2,000 years ago. I bring life to you. Yeah, you know, I'm bringing judgment. I bring you life. It's get on with it. He hung around with the hookers and the drunks and the marketplaces. He didn't hang out with the goody goodies because mm-hmm. that's boring. And I think the prize, precious thing for me is, is life itself. For all our mistakes, just enjoy it. Yeah. And the fact is I can't take credit for any of it. <laughs> but we, yes, I believe there's something and I don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul Tillich, the theologian, calls it the ground of all being. Jung called it the rhizome, I think, where we're all connected and rooted by one. Mm-hmm. You look into the universe, where did it all start? Mm-hmm. Maybe we are 13 billion years old. But that's where it came from. What else mm-hmm. is there? Mm-hmm. Somebody said... We don't see God because we're always looking for him. But God is in everything. 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 Did you have these kinds of discussions on set at all with, with Jonathan or with... No. I, I don't know what Jonathan's belief yeah. is. I think, I think he's agnostic. I'm not sure. But, but I know. I, mm-hmm. I live and let live. I don't, I don't try and preach anything mm-hmm. to anyone. I, I, I believe what I believe. And if people don't like that, that's not my problem. I feel more I feel more at peace and happier now than I've ever done. I think my trip back to Wales did it for me. Mm-hmm. It opened something up in me. I thought, well, I look at my own life and I thought, that's extraordinary. I can't take it. I wasn't clever enough to f- design this life for mm-hmm. myself. So I do these crazy tweets and Instagram. <laughs> you love it, don't you? Do you love yeah. the immediacy of it or the, the exchange with yeah. strangers? I mean, what is it that... That speaks to you. Well, I was in Rome, and the, one of the ones, when I do a crazy one, I'm dancing. Oh, yeah, that one went. I was in Rome, my wife was having a restaurant with some friends. And I don't, you know, restaurants, so I've seen one restaurant, you all the same old thing. So I like to stay in the hotel, and uh, I go out occasionally. My wife calls me a stick in the mud. But, you know, a restaurant is a restaurant is a restaurant. So I did that as a joke of me, you know, too much work <laughs> learning Latin, too much work and no play drives you crazy. Yeah. And um, I, I didn't know she was going to put it on Instagram and suddenly the response was colossal. Huge. You, if you Google your name, that's what basically pops up. Yeah. Is that... But it, it's that joy because I paint as well. I'm going up to Las Vegas on Thursday because I have a show up there and I'm in uh, the Four Seasons and I've got 60 paintings up there and they sell. Wow. And I don't know how to paint. Now, that's a secret there because 
my wife said to me before we got married, she said she'd found some old scripts of mine with drawings on the you know, blank pages. And she said, I want you to do some drawings for the wedding guest. I said, drawings? As party favours? As What does that mean? She would just do some drawings and give them to them. I said, I can't paint. She said, well, what are these? I said, they're just drawings. Do those. So I did. And then she said, I want you to paint. And so I said, she said, well, they can't put you in jail if it doesn't work. Just do it. <laughs> and uh, Stan Winston, who did Jurassic Park, you know, did design all the... Uh, he's dead, sadly. He died quite prematurely, but he... But he came over to the... We were friends, and he came over to the house in Malibu and went into the studio, my paintings were, to use the John. And as he came in, he said, um, who did these? And I pulled a face, like, apologetically, I said, I did. He said, why are you pulling a face like that? I said, well, I've had no training. He said, don't. Don't take one lesson. He said, you've got it. He said, I couldn't... He said, I couldn't paint like that. You're free. You're free. You can just paint. And then I, I remember reading a quote by Henry Miller who said, paint and die happy. Mm-hmm. And so I paint. And I play music and I compose. And I don't know what I'm doing. Is it's it like all? acting. The same thing is yeah. acting. I don't know. How do you prepare? I don't know. I learn my lines. They offer. Somebody asked me this morning, how do you prepare? I said, I know. What drew you to the part? I said, well, my simplest answer was offered me. I said, you know, if you offer me a part, I'm an actor. I'll read the phone book if they pay me. I said, well, that's... Um, I said, no, I just never read the script. I belonged to the Robert Mitchum School of Acting, a Bogart. Mitchum said, well, somebody asked Robert Mitchum. I guess people... I'm sure people will remember who he is, an older generation. But he's one of those wonderful actors, really movie, American movie actor. He said, uh, somebody asked him, he said, why did you become an actor? He said, Beats Working. <laughs> and that was it. Beats Working. Yeah, that's a good answer. I mean, so it seems to me like an equal measure you enjoy piano, drawing, painting, acting, yeah. social media, all of it. You love yeah. it. So, Tony, I want to know, what is it? what was it like being directed by Fernando Morales? And I hope I pronounced that right. What makes him different? What, what was the experience like? He's very calm. He's always got a very bright expression on his face. Hi, good morning. Uh, he's quiet. Um, a little remote in a good way. No, not unfriendly, but a little quiet and in control. He's always got a superb uh, directed photography. He's got this obviously wonderful vision because I wasn't even aware they must have had um, a drone above us. Because there's a long shot of us walking in the gardens. I couldn't even hear the drone. I don't know. And he films very fast. Do you have any, looking back, I mean, of all the characters you've played and obviously the, the Shakespeare and that you did earlier and obviously King Lear a few years ago, is there any character or that you would love to revisit or that was your favorite in particular? Or no. any actor you would want to work with again? Well, there's so many actors I have worked with. I just met Brad Pitt the other day. I worked with Brad twice. He's a wonderful actor. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, he was. Did you see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Did you see him in that? No, I haven't seen that yet. I'm still waiting to get that. But I did. I've, the Tree of Life I've seen many times. Um, he's a wonderful actor. I like Brad very much. And he's. Uh, we met the other day. He's such an ordinary, so no nonsense with him, no big head. Um, I've never worked with that gang from New York, you know, the De Niro's and all. They're mm-hmm. great actors. I don't know. I don't. Um, 
I guess I'm a little bit of an odd fish. I, I don't think much about this business. Mm-hmm. I, I, in, I spend my time drawing, write, playing the piano. I don't uh, gravitate towards this business in a social way. You know, I'm not. Mm-hmm. I remember I was in Australia doing a film with Tom Cruise, a very nice guy, and doing Mission Impossible 2, I think. And uh, his partner was, um, she married to my agent at the time, and she still married him, and, but she was his partner. And uh, Paul Wagner. Said, Paul, Paul Wagner, yeah. Paul Wagner. She was married to Rick Nassita, who was my agent then. This is a long time ago, almost 20 years ago. And uh, she said, uh, Tom wants to take you up for night at the best fish restaurant in town. And I said, oh, okay, good. Oh, God, I don't want to go out and have fish. I don't care about fish. I don't care if it's the best restaurant. I'm not interested. I just I want to go back to the hotel and watch television. And... Um, Later that afternoon, this is in Australia, later that afternoon, Rick phoned me, he said, you don't have to go to dinner tonight. I said, what? He said, I told Paula you don't like eating with actors. I said, well, that's not true. She said, well, I know what you mean. She said, no, you're not a social person. I mean, you know, you can hang around. I, when I was young, I used to drink it up and be with actors. But now you look around and you think, yes, we've done it. And to have dinner and all that. I mean, I, I never, I, I sometimes have to show up for an end of picture party, but the noise is so crushing mm-hmm. and the music is too loud and they have to these get togethers we've all got to get together and get to know each other I said, well, and to see them all tomorrow morning so I avoid the parties I try not to be rude about it but I think oh no I'm just getting too old I don't need to do all this stuff <laughs> it's boring it's boring it's just boring huh? we're all going to talk about acting all the time no <laughs> not interested mm-hmm. in it <laughs> do you still get recognised in walking around Santa Monica oh, yeah. for for Hannibal? Did oh yeah, I get I get a lot of attention, but you know I don't have a an entourage, or anything like that. Yeah, but uh, people are lovely. They want. I'm staying in the hotel at the moment, in, because we're moving house after the fires. Not that we were burned, but and I'm at breakfast, and people want photos, and I take them. I always make a joke that 150 dollars each. <laughs> they want to take selfies and. I love it because people, you know, they see an actor like me. Mm-hmm. I always talk about Hannibal Lecter or whoever. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, why not? You know, it's, uh, it's all for fun and for free. I've had a great life. Does it surprise you that that character of Hannibal Lecter is almost as famous as King Lear for, for certain it generations? Yeah? It is odd, isn't it? I don't know why, but I guess he was a frightening character. It's interesting playing him because when I got the script... Almost 30 years ago. It was 30 years ago. God, it was. But I got the script in 1989. It was in the theatre in London. My agent sent the script to read it. It's a film with Jodie Foster. And I, I started reading it. It was in a hot summer after, a hot September afternoon. And I phoned him. I said, I don't want to read anymore. He said, why not? I said, the part of, is it a definite offer? He said, well, I'm not sure yet. I said, I don't want to read anymore. Why not? I said, this is a part of a lifetime, this is. So he phoned me, he said, well, Jonathan Demme, the director, is coming to see you tomorrow night. He's flying from New York. I said, so it's an on deal? He said, yeah, looks like it. I said, so I read it, and I met Jonathan next night, and uh, I, I knew it was a part that would be, I just knew, I would say a life changer, but I knew it was a part that would, uh, that I understood. I just don't know why I understood it. But I think I understand that darkness. I didn't feel particularly... That and I, I have a kind, an uncanny sense that people want somebody on screen or on stage to express what they really feel. People who have 
a keen knowledge, a sense of what reality is. And there are a few people like that, like you know, the fictitious Hannibal Lecter or whoever. They may be crazy, but they, they have an uncanny sense about what's, what's what. I know that movie still so holds up with that and people, the, the memes of the flava beans and the Clarice. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> it's only a trick of the voice. Yeah. But I knew one thing about him, to be still and don't, don't blink. Because Jonathan asked me on the first day, Jonathan Demi, get to the cell and the, you know, these cells. And they decided not to have bars but a glass box because the bars of a cell would be obstructive for the camera. They, you know, all that stuff. So the designer said, well, why not put him in a glass box with air holes? That made it even more terrifying because there's nothing between them and the holes and he can breathe. And, mm-hmm. and Jonathan on the first day said, uh, it was a Tuesday, I remember, January 1999. 1999. And uh, he said, so Jody's coming down the corridor, you know, we have a point of view of her coming down the corridor to see Lecter. So how... How, would you be sitting down? Or I said, I'd be standing. I'd, can I just stand there? Standing? I said, yeah. He said, why? I said, because I'm waiting for her. He said, how do you know she's coming here? He said, I can smell her. He said, oh, you are weird. <laughs> <laughs> but you build it up that way because I remember that in the scene, um, it's all about clues. Let's, you put it all together like a jigsaw puzzle. She goes into Crawford's office, Scotland, and uh, he said, do you know Hannibal Lecter? She said, Hannibal the Cannibal. And the auditor remembers, oh, Hannibal the Cannibal. There's the clue. Yeah. But you're only going to talk to me because I remember, but don't let Hannibal Lecter get inside your mind. No, like, oh, mm. what are we going to say? And then she goes to the asylum and she meets Chilton. He said, she's what's he like? Oh, he's a monster. So you go the opposite way. Play a very reasonable man standing in a cell. Good morning. You're not real FBI, are you? Jack Crawford sent you to me. <laughs> and that's where it's terrifying because mm-hmm. you never know what they're going to do. <laughs> do you wa- if it comes on? Will you watch it? If you're watching television, <laughs> will you watch any of your stuff? I saw it a couple of years ago. I uh, yeah, yeah I'll, I'll, yes. I don't live there in the past, but mm-hmm. I remember being in the cinema. I was in Atlanta doing a film called Free Jack, and uh, I think the film had just been released, 1991, I believe. That's right. And I just finished it. I was with Emilio Estevez, I think, and Rene Russo. And uh, Rene Russo said, I want to go and see your film. I said, which film? He said, Silence of the Lambs. It's on the locally. I said, would you come with me? I said, my boyfriend won't mind. I said, I'm scared. I said, okay, all right. It was a hot afternoon. So we went on the Sunday afternoon. And it was a storm clouds. So I had a baseball cap and sunglasses. I went and sat, got a seat and sat with her. And um, the film started, and people were like, Ugh. And I said, she grabbed my hand, she said, oh, my God. And suddenly there was a thunderstorm, and the, all the power went out in the movie theatre. <laughs> the film went, oh, and people got up to go to the bathroom and all that. And Renee got up, and she heard someone says, probably Hannibal Lecter. And I was sitting there like this, and I just uh, taken off my sunglasses and looked up, and somebody said, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> you pranked them all in a... <laughs> I didn't mean to, yeah. But people are funny. It's, oh. a, it's fun. I mean, I, I, it's so fun. I don't take it seriously. Oh, this has been so much fun talking to you. All right, 
Last question. What do you hope or what do you want people to take away from the two popes when they experience it? Tolerance. Open up. Be flexible. Everyone has a point of view, even if they have terrible points of view. Have a point of view. Negotiate. Talk about it. Open up. Be JFK. Stop bickering on and on and on. Have some sense of openness. Everyone has a right to an opinion, even though they may be destructive opinions. Open up. We're all flawed humans. None of us have the answer. We're all screw-ups. Look at our world. We've screwed it up for 300,000 years. Just join the crowd. That's what we like. And we may make some progress, but we won't make any progress through hatred. Just go back 80 years ago. What happened there in Europe? Certainty, they call it. That's the terrible devil. Certainty, where you know what's right for people. Mm-hmm. That's terrible. And whichever party you belong to, whichever religion, lighten up. Mm. Well, thank you, Sir thank you to- Sir Anthony Hopkins. Oh, no, don't call me that. <laughs> thank you. It's true, though. It's 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 there, Tony. Tony. It's great to see you, and I'm so happy that you've chosen California. We love having you oh, here. Oh, it's beautiful here. Beautiful. Well, I'm glad oh, you I liked the film. I did. I love the film, and yeah. you're fantastic in it. And it's thank you. it's everything you say. It's touching and and funny and enlightening. And I learned so much in it, and I enjoyed. All of it. Thanks so much for joining me. The Two Popes is streaming now on Netflix. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast wherever you've been listening. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Krista Smith. Join me next time for more meaningful conversations here at Present Company.